Welcome to the Experience Revolution podcast with host Josephine Momberg. Listen as she interviews leaders on how the experience economy is influencing a new world of business. Welcome. Hello and welcome to this episode of our podcast. As you all know, the world is in the midst of a global pandemic. And today I'd like to talk about the impact of this pandemic on the higher education industry. We want to help you all understand what the immediate impact of this crisis is, but also to look beyond the here and now at how the crisis will likely transform higher education for years to come. So our guest today is Dr. Malcolm Whitfield. He's the global leader of SAP's education and research industry practice. Hello, Malcolm. Hi, Josie. Nice to meet you. Well, nice to meet you too. And uh, thank you so much for being here today. So in my understanding, education and research is being profoundly impacted by the current COVID-19 pandemic. What's the immediate impact that you're seeing this far? Uh, well, the education sector globally is currently experiencing some of the deepest and um, most lasting effects of the current crisis. Um, the, the very fundamentals of education, the, the how and where and why students learn, has pretty much changed overnight. Uh, so uh, as part of the effort to slow the spread of the uh, novel coronavirus, uh, as we know, almost all schools, colleges, universities worldwide are simply closed, uh, from preschool to doctoral students. Uh, uh, routines have just become completely upended. Um, just like the pandemic itself, education closures were initially confined to China, uh, Iran, Korea, um, and Italy, uh, but have now become pretty much global. So this affects most of the global student population, which stands at about 1.5 billion students. And to put that number in context, that's about 20% of the world's population. So roughly 20% of the world's population now, which is also the equivalent of the world's full-time workforce, um, are affected because students are not only not going to school, but they're also confined at home with their parents, which is, um, I think, parents agree is pretty much a bit of a mixed blessing. <laughs> yes, I would definitely agree with that. And I've heard that personally speaking to a lot of uh, people that are working from home with their children, you know, getting quality time is always a good thing, but we might, they might be experiencing a little too much of that right now. So you can have too much of a good thing. Yeah. Yes, exactly. That might be this, the current situation. And, you know, that's, Malcolm, that's a crazy high number of, of students. And we just talked about the, the parents and how their experiences. So can you touch a little bit more on what the impact is on, on the parents? Uh, well, most parents, of course, have been uh, asked to stay home and work from home uh, if possible. Um, but of course, they've also been kind of drafted into the education workforce, right? I mean, they're now taking care of their children, including their education and this is something for which they're not trained they're not they're not prepared um, and then on top of that is the impact on the existing education workforce you know which is pretty a pretty that's a pretty big slice of our workforce yeah and just to put some numbers to it how many people work in the education sector probably more than you might think um, yeah. especially when you when you think about 
the support staff, administrators, janitors, food providers. Because you've got to remember that in addition to classrooms and laboratories, right, the teaching and research side, a college campus is, is kind of like a small city, right? It has roads, parking, housing, dining, shopping, sports facilities, entertainment, often a police force, often a medical center, maybe even a full-blown hospital. Um, and they also have a big impact on the, the local and regional economy. You know, every country has its so-called college towns, right? Leuven in Belgium, Manipal in India, Helsinki in Finland, Cambridge, of course, very famously in England, Heidelberg uh, in Germany, you know, where SAP is based, Boston in the US, of course, with Harvard and, uh, and MIT and, and Boston University. So these are very important to the, uh, to the local uh, economy. So the, the knock-on effect is, is very important. Uh, and certainly in terms of the workforce, in the United States, uh, education is the largest employer in 15 states, including Texas, California, and Massachusetts. So between them, if you take education and healthcare together, they are jointly the largest employers of people in the United States. So that, and of course, they are the most impacted by the current crisis. So it gives you some sense of the extent of this on the workforce. Right. And now that we've talked about kind of the immediate impacts of COVID-19, what do you see that the, the short-term impacts would be? Well, pretty much overnight, educators around the world really have had to pivot to an entirely digital delivery model. And this, Im this impacts students, educators themselves who have to, to do that, and of course, families uh, are all affected in profound ways, but also, unfortunately, in quite uneven ways. Um, so millions of students are right now being forced to study remotely. Educators are being forced finally to give up the personal lecture-based form of education. But in fact, the digital tools for remote learning and working, for that matter, are not really as widely adopted or available as, as some might have assumed. So the pandemic has acted as a kind of a stress test on institutions, um, you know, kind of testing where they're strong, where they're weak. Um, and in particular, in education, it's reopened, you know, what we used to call the digital divide. We don't use that term very much anymore, and I think we've kind of assumed that the digital divide has kind of closed. But actually, it's not. Uh, and, you know, you remember that actually 40% of the world, or about 3 billion people, don't have internet access, for example. And we have to, we've got to relearn that that, that is the case. Um, and also, you know, some of, say, a lesson plan uh, that a, a teacher has put together uh, in a K-12 environment may not translate well into a digital situation. So even down to that level, uh, you know, the teachers who act kind of like Sherpas to their students, you know, what is a reasonable load in the classroom can actually become quite overwhelming. Um, and a student who maybe was doing perfectly well can now start to struggle uh, in, in this environment. So overall, 
um, you know, things have been turned upside down, right? The academic calendar has pretty much come to a standstill and there's no universal guidance on how to handle things like examinations, graduation, um, uh, qualifying boards uh, required to enter the workforce. So we're gonna have mixed approaches, which will have repercussions, I think, for quite a long time. At the same time, right now, many medical students have seen their studies accelerated or cut short, so they can actually be drafted into to fight on uh, the front line of the pandemic. Um, but I, in particular, I think the, the, the lack of ass assessment and examination um, is kind of an immediate uh, uh, headache, to say the least, because you've got to remember that the fundamental purpose of an institute of education is to provide learning and to assess the student progress in that learning and to certify that the learner has qualified to graduate and enter the workplace. That's the basic, if you like, kind of supply chain of education. Apart from all the other important aspects of education, that's kind of the basic, um, that's the basic thread, right? So um, my customers, uh, you know, have had to delay a lot of the activities around teaching and assessment and examination and, and graduation. So, uh, for example, one of my leading German customers, the Technical University of Munich, um, immediately um, put in effect a, a campus-wide ban, which included banning all live classes and all examinations. Um, another of my leading German customers, the Technical University of Berlin, normally has a heavily subscribed um, summer semester. Uh, that has been canceled, um, and there's no online replacement for that right now. Um, again, a couple of examples from, from Asia, just to, as I say, just to make it clear, this is really as a global uh, uh, phenomenon and, and issue. We have um, some of the leading Singaporean universities, Nanyang Te Technical University, NTU, and the National Univ University of Singapore, NUS. Uh, they have both enabled teachers to waive graded assessments on 10 courses per student. So in other words, instead of grading, they will be replaced with a simple pass or fail grade. They actually have this capability um, and they've been you know, approved uh, to use it. So I think going forward, that kind of flexibility may also become a permanent feature of assessment. And I think the whole future of assessment will be, will be reassessed. Yeah, so it seems like there are actually some pretty serious, I mean, consequences, of course, in relation to how this impacts in higher education. So do you think there is any risk to degradation of testing and standards? Yeah, I think we're going to, I think globally, we're going to have to kind of rethink, especially if we, if we do, if there's an increase in online learning, how we assess students' uh, activity and learning and, and, and so on. So, uh, I mean, we'll be working with one of our customers, for example, um, a division of Cambridge University called Cambridge Assessment um, uh, uses our backbone for their business, and they, they assess annually about 7 million students uh, in about 160 countries. So they're a big provider of testing and standards and, and, and so on. Um, we'll probably see technologies like blockchain, for example, more widely used um, to secure 
um, accreditation and qualifications. We've already got customers like MIT, for example, put all their academic qualifications today on blockchain. So the question of security for these kinds of things is also going to become an issue. So we'll see some of those technologies, I think, more widely adopted, but also, as I say, we will be, I think, reimagining um, the future, the future of, a, of student assessment. Hmm. And what about liquidity? I've been reading a lot about that and about funding challenges, especially when it comes to smaller businesses. How do you think the current crisis impact the funding available for education? Well, it's going to be huge, of course, because uh, you know an education entity gets sources from three funds, right? Uh, three sources: uh, public funds, that is to say, taxes, and even private schools, uh, you know, often receive some public funding. Secondly, tuition fees, uh, and again, that's pretty much now globally the case, even in countries like like the UK and Germany, which in the past were did not charge fees, now, now they do. And to a lesser extent from institutions' investment, if they have investment portfolios. Um, so uh, a, a US publication called The Chronicle of Higher Education recently um, sub started to survey the impact um, of these closures um, and came to the conclusion that as, as much as 20% of U.S. colleges who are now closed may not be able to reopen uh, because of the financial impact. So, you know, that one in five uh, of those colleges. Um, another survey uh, carried out by a different publication uh, found that 89% um, of university presidents uh, are currently... Uh, express serious concern about their uh, their institution's financial future. Eighty nine percent, eighty eight percent of them expressed uh, uh, that they expect a decline in enrollment, and eighty one expressed concern about their ability <clears throat> to continue to employ the same levels of teaching staff and administrative staff, at least in those traditional um, functions. So. Uh, obviously, a, a big impact on, on funding. I mean, as we know, tax revenue is going to be down worldwide, right? So the public funding uh, will be dramatically reduced. Businesses are closed. They're not paying taxes. Employees are not paying taxes. They're not working. Um, they're not consuming, so they're not paying sales tax. Um, on the student fee side, you know, students are not going to be asked to pay the same for online learning as they are for uh, a campus experience, um, and especially in some of the more expensive, um, you know, universities, um, you know, uh, universities are going to take a, a, a significant hit there. Um, um, and then on the um, uh, on the side of investment income, again, uh, really only the elite universities have uh, significant investment portfolios, but they do use them for operating. Uh, punk, uh, funds, right? So Harvard, for example, uh, has a forty billion dollar investment portfolio, but but operates on thirty five percent of its operating budget is covered by that investment. Now we don't know how that's going to be hit, but into the two thousand nine market crash, uh, Harvard's investment value fell by thirty percent. So um, again. Uh, overall, of course, this impact of the erosion of the tax base um, will impact all public services. This is not unique to, to education. 
Um, but the impact on uh, customers, so to speak, on the students is, I think, going to have some unique uh, you know, features uh, for education. Right. And Malcolm, earlier you mentioned that this pandemic has been making its way around the world. So are we seeing any learnings so far? Uh, the, in, in, the, in the first effects of conscious, there was an immediate uh, response in terms of education. They really saw that, that education and youth was going to be impacted. So um, governments from South Korea to Japan to Lebanon have been um, distributing interactive uh, applications to teach just about everything from calculus to fitness. Um, even as early as February in China, um, the Chinese government had opened up dedicated television channels to um, uh, about 100 million uh, students in China uh, for education. There's been a pretty dramatic increase in the use of WhatsApp, for example, for uh, just for a, a communication, distributing lesson plans and so on. We've seen a, a, an overnight growth in partnership between governments and the private sector. So between technology companies like SAP, for example, media companies, entertainment companies, to really accelerate the global digitization uh, of education assets. And I think that's what we're going to see is not maybe not so much a, a revolutionary change, but really an acceleration of the evolution towards uh, digitization. So we're playing our part in this at SAP. We've established a unit dedicated to academies and university alliances and university relations. We have, um, we're providing a digital platform called Open SAP uh, for delivering MOOCs, massive online, uh, open online courses. Um, and that, of course, is, is free, uh, you know, to, to our customers. Um, Harvard and MIT have actually combined forces to do something similar, a platform, platform called Open edX, uh, where they provide their courses. But that doesn't, doesn't mean you can graduate the course with an MIT or Harvard degree, but you can, you can consume that content. Hmm. Malcolm, all these changes are, I mean, they're pretty amazing, but change can also be hard, especially I think at the pace that we're seeing right now. So what impact are these changing ha changes having on mental health of students and educators? No, that's a, that's a great point. Um, and actually, generally, in, in the last year or so, we've started to pay more attention to student mental health. Uh, so again, I think this is going to accelerate uh, that. Um, inside that, that uh, survey I mentioned of education leaders, financial viability, as I said, was actually the top long-term concern, but actually the, the top immediate concern was student mental health. Um, and there is a mental health aspect to this, uh, this pandemic, this crisis. Students have lots of questions. Some of them are very detailed. I mean, for example, if you're on an athletics scholarship and there's no athletics, what happens to my scholarship? You know, there's all kinds of uh, you know, uncertainty um, and, and, um, and stress associated with this. Mm. And how can we then assess this mental, the mental health needs? Um, well, there are um, uh, survey tools and platforms um, in place. Um, at SAP, we have a, a company called Qualtrics, 
which is uh, very, very widely used already in colleges and universities for um, getting insight into the student experience and also the employee experience. Um, so we're offering a, a, some, a free version um, of that um, to take the pulse, so to speak, of university and school students to check on their mental state, on their academic standing. Um, we're also, by the way, speaking of opening up our uh, technology, um, we've also implemented a version of our procurement platform, which is called Ariba, um, to enable school districts to log on and share resources or find out where there are resources, not only for schools, but also for families. And that includes clothing, food, and so on, uh, because, you know, uh, people are getting laid off, they're losing their jobs. So um, we are trying to also use our global reach um, to, um, to connect uh, people and keep them connected and ensure that where there are resources, uh, people know where to find them. Mm. I mean, Malcolm, we could spend a lot of time discussing feedback mechanisms between the educators, the students, and the caretakers. But for the sake of time, let's pivot now to the employees who organize the delivery of the student experience. How are they affected and how will that organization be forced to change and innovate? Well, like most industries, the education workforce is now um, working from home uh, as best they can. Um, and there are three parts to this workforce, right? There are teachers, of course, there are researchers, uh, and there's the support staff. And as I said earlier, um, you know, that, that comprises a, a pretty big workforce responsible for, you know, running the whole uh, you know, back office, so, so to speak. Um, on the teaching side, um, for some teachers, and, and I think um, especially the younger ones, the, the pivot to online learning, communicating through social media like Facebook and WhatsApp and so on, has been, you know, has been quite easy. It's been, been really an expansion of what they're doing already. But, but not for everyone. For many, it's been a challenge. Um, you know, nobody has a studio at home to record lectures. Uh, you can't really reproduce the classroom experience and so on. So um, it's, not, it's not been quite the, um, the natural move to simply switch to online learning. Um, so I think we're going to see going forward some uh, re-enablement of that on the teaching side. When you look at the research workforce, the challenge is actually even greater. I mean, you can't, you can't rebuild your lab in your basement, right? So... Um, you know, what do you do? Now, some of them, of course, are still working. The university research staff, who are actually part of the army of clinical researchers right now, collecting data about COVID-19 and, and contributing towards the search for COVID-19 vaccine and treatment, um, you know, they are working, of course. That, that includes, again, my customer, Johns Hopkins, uh, for example, in Baltimore, um, have um, made available a COVID-19 tracking dashboard, which is used pretty much worldwide right now. Um, so that part of the research um, workforce is, is uh, you know, is still at work. But then, as I say, there's the extensive support staff, right, who run education kind of behind the scenes, right? And they take care of things like, you know, class registration or financial aid and, and all the rest of it. So... They are obviously, you know, experiencing the limitations of running a quite a complex uh, enterprise 
uh, remotely. And those limitations are, as I said, being exposed by this, um, this, uh, this stress test uh, on the industry. And this, I think, will drive, will drive change. Um, and, and we are, from SAP, we're kind of looking at change in three, if you like, phases or, or tiers. Firstly, um, the immediate um, uh, response um, uh, to the crisis. Secondly, recovery from the crisis. And thirdly, reimagining uh, the, the business going forward. Uh, in other words, you know, we're not going to be able to put the toothpaste back in the tube, so to speak, right, after this change. So there will be there will be long-term, um, uh, you know, changes. So I think if the, as I said, if the pace of the digitization of student engagement and student uh, assessment will accelerate, so will the pace of the digitization of the whole supporting infrastructure. This will be longer term. Mm. Um, but, but as I say, there's, there's, there will be no going back to the analog ways of doing business, partly because we've learned that um, it's very difficult, maybe impossible, to actually provide an online learning experience without a digital uh, platform and, and backbone to support it. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I've heard before, I think not just for higher ed, that COVID-19 has really been the prime driver for digital transformation in that sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so we're, we're familiar with this. I mean, this is our bread and butter at SAP, right? So uh, we, are, we are very familiar with that digital journey. As I say, I think it's going to be accelerated uh, now. Um, and, and many of my customers, of course, are already uh, moving down that path towards a kind of a full digitization of the student experience and, um, and the operation. Uh, for example, Purdue University in Indiana uh, worked with us to digitize the entire administration with the very goal of actually reducing administration and focusing more on, um, on the student experience. In the course of that, they actually acquired a for-profit um, operation called Kaplan University, uh, especially for its um, online capability, and they call that Purdue Global. Um, we, we're similarly right now working with uh, one of the oldest remote learning institutions in the world called, um, called the Open University in the UK. Um, they have 175,000 students, which actually makes it the largest university in the UK. They began in the late 60s uh, providing classes actually via television, via a, a dedicated TV cable. Uh, channel, uh, what became a cable channel. Uh, so we're now working with them to digitize that, as I say, that student uh, information and student engagement, but again, the entire um, operation. Uh, so we're used to this, this journey uh, and, and, and supporting that journey, but I, I think that that is a journey that is going now to, to, uh, you know, to really speed up. Mm. It's quite amazing to hear from you what universities are already doing now to to cope. And like you said, in the, it's going to have sustainable impacts in the future. So if you if you look at a few years from now, what do you think education will look like? Will we still have classrooms? Like what kind of experience will be mainstream? Well, as I said, I think that um, the whole digital uh, environment will become mainstream, uh, and by digital, 
uh, as I say, I mean both the, how the student uh, learns, uh, but also uh, the research environment and the whole um, operational environment. Um, so, as I said, we're, we're learning to what the extent to which digital student engagement requires digital support. Uh, and I'm talking about, as I said, things like student enrollment, a student assessment, student records, uh, document management, you know, these all have to be, we, we, these have to be digitized pretty much end to end so that we can bring together the student experience with the academic data uh, and the employment data. That I think will be the big, um, almost revolutionary uh, step forward or certainly a very uh, accelerated evolution towards that. But yeah, there will still be classrooms because students still want the whole campus experience they want you know athletics they want clubs and and, and so on so uh, but i think i think the big change is that we'll see more of an end-to-end -end digital um uh, enterprise um and so uh you know i think technology will be more more pervasive um and including um intelligent technologies so we will see um, things like chatbots and digital assistants answering student inquiries. As I said earlier, we'll see blockchain being used to secure digital diplomas. We'll see virtual reality uh, used to simulate real interaction. We'll see machine learning and artificial intelligence managing some of these student-facing processes. We'll see predictive analytics to get more insight into student performance and to to support student advising, um, which will have a predictive aspect to it. We'll see Internet of Things being used to enable uh, a kind of sentient campus to, to some extent, manage itself. So we'll see all these. But as I said, these are all digital technologies that require a digital black backbone. They cannot simply be put on the front end of a traditional um, uh, setup. Uh, and it will require a kind of a... Um, uh, a two-way uh, function, the digitization of the student and of the, um, uh, you know, the, the workforce. In fact, we just uh, signed a contract with a university in Brazil, which is actually the largest university in the world with about 2 million students, and they're mainly taking classes remotely. Uh, we'll be helping them on their digital journey, their digital transformation. Um, and they, in fact, have as their transformation strategy two aspects. One they call Go Digital, which is addressed to students, and Be Digital, which is addressed to the workforce and the staff. And I think it's a great vision um, uh, that we cannot enable students to go digital without being digital ourselves. And I think that's going to be um, the overall strategy for education going forward. Wow, yeah. That's, I mean, that, this is so fascinating and, and so interesting. And I think, Malcolm, this has been such an enlightening conversation. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Do you have any final remarks? Well, you know, we've not touched on the question of how education uh, can better cope with the next crisis. Uh, and I think for one thing, I think we're all going to be less uh, complacent, right? Uh, in other yeah. words, we acknowledge that there will be another crisis uh, sooner or later of some kind. Um, the consultancy group McKinsey, for example, just published a report 
recommending that we set up nerve centers to manage education in a crisis to centralize uh, you know, some of the things that, you know, that I've been talking like, like assessment, examination, and so on. Um, so uh, you know, we will learn from this challenging and, and very stressful time because uh, you know, in education, that's what we do. We are mm. a learning industry after all. Um, so we will come out of this stronger and smarter and more skilled to serve the next generation of, of learners. I'm very confident about that. Mm. And I've definitely learned a lot from this conversation. So again, thank you so much, Malcolm, for coming on the show. And to everyone who listened to this episode, thank you for listening in. Thank you for listening. Listen to more episodes and subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and OpenSAP. For more information, check out SAP's Experience Management website.